I am Beth Bennett. Today is Tuesday, February 20th. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Coming up, I spoke with Annabelle Abstreet, author of an intriguing book on insomnia, a major health issue and general annoyance. She'll introduce you to some of the science of circadian rhythms underlying insomnia and an alternative look at these nocturnal waking hours. But first, let's take a look at some of the recent news in science. Thinking about your next COVID vaccination? Or maybe shingles, RSV, or flu? Or if you're a parent, there are some 50 shots to schedule before your kids turn 18. If you're like me, you might prefer getting these in your non-dominant arm to make your life easier. Maybe we should rethink this strategy. A new study from the University of Oregon looked at responses to the first two doses of COVID-19 vaccines. Those who alternated arms showed a small increase in immunity over those who got both doses in the same arm. This study looked at 54 pairs of university employees matched for age, gender, and time after vaccination. The participants, part of a larger research project, were randomized to get the second dose in the same arm as the first dose, or in the opposite arm. The researchers excluded anyone who became infected with COVID during the study. Antibody levels to four different coronavirus proteins from two different strains of the virus were measured after three weeks and eight and 14 months. Switching the arms increased blood antibody levels by as much as fourfold. The immune response was stronger against both the original coronavirus and against the Omicron variant, which emerged roughly a year after the authorization of the first COVID vaccines. These results appear to contradict those from a German study last summer showing that rolling up the same sleeve each time might yield a better immune response. But the German study measured antibody levels only two weeks after the second dose. The new Oregon study found similar results in the first few weeks, but the pattern slowly shifted over the subsequent months to higher antibody levels in those who alternated arms. These results matter because for individuals who respond poorly to vaccines because of age or health conditions, even a small boost may turn out to be significant. At this point in the pandemic, with most people having had multiple vaccine doses or infections, alternating arms for the vaccines may not offer much benefit. But if these results replicate with other vaccines, they could have implications for all multi-dose vaccines, including childhood immunizations. Well, what do animal studies tell us? One mouse study found that a single lymph node can generate strong immunity following vaccination. Now, we have lymph nodes all over our bodies. You may be most familiar with the ones under your chin, where your physician might feel for swelling if you visit them for a respiratory bug. I started to wonder, how does the antigen, that's the foreign protein introduced into your arm by a vaccination, get from the injection site to the lymph node? Bear with me, because this story illustrates a lot about how our immune system works. First, you have these roving cells, kind of like robot vacuums, that are constantly wandering through all of your tissues and organs looking for invaders to clean up. They're the first responders. They find the protein from the vaccination, pick it up, and carry it off to a lymph node. The lymph nodes are where a whole bunch of different, very specialized immune system cells congregate, kind of like an army base where an early report of an invasion would mobilize a lot of different responders. Some of these responding cells make antibodies, which are proteins that circulate through your blood to grab onto the specific foreign molecule. This specificity is really quite remarkable. 
Not only does each antibody recognize one and only one foreign invader, it also recognizes just one particular piece of it. Kind of like a missile designed not just against an enemy tank, but against the type of tread on that tank. Okay, so back to the study in alternating arms. In most people, extending the interval between doses by three to four months, as was done in Canada for COVID shots, rather than the three to four weeks recommended in the United States, may offer a greater benefit than switching arms does. This is because antibody levels naturally fall off after a few months when the initial alarm has declined. But it's still worth studying all of these strategies because about 3% of the U.S. population is immunocompromised. This can be due to an autoimmune disease or cancer treatments that shut down the immune system. In these people, even small gains can be life-saving. This study was published last month in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. I've been up all night long Just waiting on the sun I've given up damn the dawn It ain't never gonna Annabelle Abstreet is a writer of highly researched, award-winning fiction, as well as both narrative and practical nonfiction. She was on our show two years ago talking about a very fun book, 52 Ways to Walk. In her new book, Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self, she dives into both the science of sleep and sleeplessness and a new perspective on life after midnight. Hormones and neurotransmitters peak or decline after dark, allowing our night selves to draw on different parts of our brain. Annabelle chronicles how many women figured out how to navigate sleepless nights to mine creativity, wisdom, and courage, from sculptors and painters, novelists and poets, to astronomers, photographers, and others who came fully alive in the deep of night. They flourished in sleepless hours. I am talking to Annabelle Abstreets about her new book, Sleepless. Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self, in which she takes a deep dive into the phenomenon of insomnia and embraces it and explores the many dimensions that we can explore at night when we're awake. So, Annabelle, let's start talking about some of the science, because, of course, we are on a science show, and there's been amazing Uh, progress in the study of sleep in the last several decades. But still, we don't know all that much about the function. And I think people like you, by exploring the loss of sleep, can come to some conclusions about just what it is that sleep does for us. Yes, there's been a lot of research into the sleeping brain at night, and in fact, quite a lot of research into sleep deprivation and how it affects us but there's been hardly any research at all done on the awake at night brain. Uh, in fact, just a couple of, stu- one study really, which I, I drew on quite heavily. And you make some really good points throughout the book about some of the various physiological events that take place during the night, usually when we're sleeping. And then when we're awake, those get um, messed up a bit. And so it, turns out that maybe the people we are in the middle of the night when we're awake are not the same people we are during the day. Like just for instance, there's cycles in hormones, circadian cycles, like 
cortisol and dopamine, and even possibly um, an endogenously produced psychedelic compound called DMT that some of the listeners might recognize as um, a plant compound that's active in various psychoactive drugs like ayahuasca. Yes, that's right. I think these are all fairly new discoveries. So a number of things happen that are really bound to light and dark. So when darkness falls, our brains start to prepare for the night. So I think we all know about uh, the you know production of melatonin, which uh, helps us to, to fall asleep. But there are all sorts of other hormones that come into play. So there's the hormone called leptin, which stops us feeling hungry. Uh, and that was really to stop us from going out and foraging in the middle of the night, which was a dangerous time, sort of millennia back. Um, we know that cortisol, so that the two hormones, norepinephrine and cortisol, which are very much day hormones that keep us alert and energetic and cheerful, they sort of fall away. So cortisol is at its lowest point at about midnight. But cortisol and norepinephrine are really interesting because what they do during the day is they, one of the things they do is, is they keep all the different brain parts in their sort of separate zones. So if you think of a dormitory of children all in bed, uh, norepinephrine and cortisol are like the two parents keeping everybody there, making sure they don't get in and out of each other's beds and don't escape. But at night with norepinephrine and cortisol sort of out of the way, because they've just they've just slipped away, you know, all those, uh, all those, I think of all those children in the dormitory beds suddenly sort of suddenly start waking up. So other brain parts uh, have to step into that vacuum, uh, which we don't experience, of course, if we're asleep. But if we're awake, we become aware that our brain is, you know, that we're thinking slightly differently. And uh, I think generally people are very familiar with the ruminative version of themselves. So they wake up at night and they will start fretting and feeling anxious and worrying about things that quite often they might not have worried about during the day. So that ruminative brain part is also partly the doing of uh, our prefrontal cortex, which is the a big, the most evolved brain part. And it sits just behind our forehead and it's very rational and methodical and organized. And it's very good at judging and assessing and weighing up risk versus reward. That bit of the brain goes into partial hibernation at night. It has to sort of rest and repair. So when that when that brain goes to sleep, if we're awake, other parts of our brain have to come in and, and sort of compensate. Uh, and then they're not quite as controlled and, and organized as the prefrontal cortex. So people who do night work will often say that the things they produce, whether that's writing or painting, or drawing or whatever it is, music, they'll say that their night work is very different from their day work. Uh, and that was something I found in, in my own um, things that I did, but also in researching people from, from the past and people who are, are working during the day and or the night at the moment. And you went on quite a journey that you detail in the book, and maybe we can touch on a few of, of those points. You went on such a journey exploring different um, individuals through the past and, and even into the present who have explored those night cells. Maybe you could talk about a few of your favorite women that you identified in that process. There were there were a lot of women, and I, thought, I think that's partly because the prefrontal cortex is bigger and more active in women. So when that shuts down, the that sort of inner critic uh, shuts down with it. So, so I think for a lot of women, they felt freer 
when they were doing things at night. And of course, also, it was a time that they had for themselves and they weren't expected to do household chores. And household chores tend to be sort of noisy. So we're, we're automatically sort of pushed into doing things that are quieter and more reflective. Um, but uh, Lee Krasner, Jackson Pollock's wife, she had a three years where she couldn't sleep. And first of all, she tried to go for walks with her dogs. She thought that will tire me out uh, and that will make me sleep, but it didn't. And so then she decided that she would just get up and she would paint. And she painted these huge, huge canvases. And she she's really interesting if you if you read her talking about this series of paintings, which she calls her night journeys, because she says, you know, she painted in a completely different way. Even how she thrust the brush was completely different to how she would paint during the day. And after three years, she started to sleep again. And she said that she never went back to that night style of painting. Uh, Joan Mitchell, another American painter, she painted at night. Between 10 and 3 were her hours. And very, very interesting in her journal when she talks about looking at the first few night paintings and thinking where they come from. You know, how did I do that? So, again, there were all these just little indications that people were producing things that were a little bit baffling even to even to themselves. The same goes with writers. I mean, Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf are very good examples um, of, of people, of, of women whose work was so different when they did it at night. Uh, Louise Bourgeois, the sculptor, she was insomniac for, I think, about 75 years. She actually lived to be 98. But she eventually ended up sort of using sketching and drawing to soothe herself back to sleep. So, so different women used used their art in, in different ways. Some used it to find a more creative version of themselves. Some used it to try and get back to sleep. Um, so that, so that, that was, I thought that was fascinating. And I love your analogy of the dormitory and how our brains are partitioned into different um, operating centers and many of them go offline at night. And I think one thing that many people, myself included, can relate to when we're awake at night is that partly because we're so visual, you know, and we can't see in the dark so well, we get more nervous and afraid. But you also point out that our amygdala, which is one part of the brain that regulates fear and anxiety, comes online and it's natural mm -hmm. and actually probably even um, an evolutionary advantage given that we are not nocturnal creatures so that, you know, in our distant past living in small groups, there would be some of us that would be awake at night and be vigilant. And so one thing that I really enjoyed that you um, put an alternative spin on instead of thinking at night, oh, I'm such a bad sleeper, you think, oh, I'm such a good watcher. And that would, you know, just turn the glass half full instead of half empty. Yeah, it's very interesting because, um, as you as you point out, in parallel with that changed rewired brain, you've also got the the darkness coming in and our age old response to that, which is to be which is to be vigilant and to be a little bit fearful. Uh, and one of the reasons that we love light so much is because as soon as we put the light on, our you know our fearful emotional amygdala amygdala sorry goes goes back you know goes back to sleep. It just sort of settles down. So the amygdala loves light. And I think this is one of the reasons that we all love light. And as a result, of course, we've, we've, we've just sort of, we've just put light everywhere. Every hour of the day, there's now light. And that's partly because we love it so much. But, but we do really need darkness. And uh, recent studies are now saying that if, if we don't have you know, proper darkness at night, that can be really detrimental to our, not just to our, to our 
sort of physical health, but to our mental well-being. We seem to need that darkness at night as much as we need light during the day. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of agreement among sleep scientists that all this bright light electrification and especially screens late at night mess with those hormonal cycles that lead us into sleep. And you did some very interesting experiments on yourself. Talk a little bit about your night walks and how the experience of using non-electrical light like candles and fire light um, altered your sleep experience. Yeah, so being outside in the darkness was not something I had done on my own, I think, ever. So I I had quite a long sort of, I call it a program, really, a program of adjusting myself to to the night darkness and to being active and, and physical in the dark. And it's very interesting because when we are out walking at night without a torch or a, you know, or a headlamp, um, we, we move differently. Uh, our sense of smell is much more acute. Our hearing is more acute and we hear more. We also hear completely different things because, uh, you know, night is a different world and you hear, you know, nocturnally migrating birds and you hear insects you don't normally hear and you hear owls. But also you smell, you smell plants. There are a lot of plants that only release their scent at night because they're designed to attract moths. So these are plants that you don't even smell during the day. Uh, but at night with your olfactory bulb, so your olfactory bulb is at its peak at about 9 p.m. apparently. So so we're used to we're used to being, uh, you know, just being more living more in our body in the dark and being aware of our other senses and our sense of uh, of proprioception, our vestibular system. Have, they have to work really hard because our sense of balance isn't so good because we can't see. So when you go out for a night walk, you do very quickly stop any ruminating because you have to really concentrate on on how you move and just concentrate on getting through space. So it was a very good, it's sort of a form of meditation, really, because you're so suddenly in your body that you have to sort of step out of your mind, which I think always helps at night. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is good to have that experience of getting rid of that visual crutch because so much of our rational brain relies on vision. So if you don't have that, then we can explore those alternative sensory modalities, which are really lovely. And I'm just... Personally, I'm curious about your night walks. Um, did you find that after you walked and you kind of calmed some of those fear and anxiety producing areas of the brain down, was it easy to get back to sleep? Yes, that was that was a real epiphany for me because I think we all think that we should just lie very calmly in our beds and eventually sleep will return. It never occurred to me that actually going out and moving uh, that was the right thing to do. That's that was what was going to bring sleep back. But actually, that was so. Quite often, I would get up and I'd go for a walk. And of course, on the first few walks, I was quite scared. I, I don't know what I thought. I thought someone was going to jump out from behind a tree. The truth is, if you're in the countryside, there's there's no one there. Uh, so once you once I had sort of got over that and was starting to just walk very calmly around, you know, around these fields, I would come back and get into bed and I would just go straight back to sleep as though it was the most normal thing in the world to get up and go for a walk in the dark. But <laughs> That's it was, a big <laughs> there is something about also having the stars above you and the moon and looking at the constellations and, and watching them change over the night. There's something very, very reassuring about that, the, about the, you know, the predictability of it the certainty of it, knowing that that has been just going on and on and on forever. 
it's it's very very calming and i think also there's a lot of research now showing that if you have you know a lot of space above you um and they call it the cathedral effect you know that also changes how you think and you will think in a more creative more sort of lateral perhaps a more abstract way which again sort of lends itself to the night really uh, partly because you can't see anything apart yeah, from the a really interesting um, message that you had about the calming effect of that cathedral effect and the, the so-called panoramic vision, because we all are, or many of us are aware of the calming effect of breathing, but I hadn't given any thought prior to reading this about how when you are in the vastness of nature and, you know, we're aware of our own insignificance, then that is absolutely calming. And I can see that it would have that effect on you to you know, subside all that mental turbulence and allow sleep to take hold again. Mm. Yes, that's exactly what it does. And you feel as though you've dropped into some quite primal version of yourself, some very old version of yourself, if that makes sense. I felt as I moved through the fields that I was doing something that, you know, my very distant ancestors would have done and would have felt it had exactly the same emotions and sensations that I was having and, and that isn't a, that obviously doesn't happen when we're sitting in front of a laptop or right. or putting something in the microwave. So there's that sense of sudden connection with your own lineage, but going back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And again, that's very I think that's something very restful about that, too. Yeah. And I think it's a really uh, fantastic experience to have something that I experience when I'm in the natural world is that feeling of connectedness to the distant past. And it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective too, that, you know, our brains are kind of wired to survive in that environment that nurtured us for hundreds of thousands of generations before mm. this very recent epoch of industrialization. So that, that was a lovely thought that came from your book as well. And yeah, it was funny because I, I was looking, looking back at my own family tree and I discovered that my grandparents didn't have electricity until the 1950s and that's that's you know that's less than 100 years ago that, that you said so they were living with candles and oil lamps <laughs> oil right. lamps possibly yeah. gas lamps yeah for, and for you, so did long. Mention, you did mention that you, when your experiment was sleeping with a candlelight that you did sleep better yes yes so when I wake up now which I don't do so much but I still will wake in the night I will always light a candle. I won't put any lights on. I won't certainly won't look at a screen or a phone uh, or, you know, watch anything on Netflix. So the candle goes on and I have it by my bed, a, a beeswax candle, and I light it. And then I keep by my bed also a, a notebook unlined so that you're not worried about the lines. And I have a pencil and I will just start, you know, writing by candlelight. And quite often... I then return to sleep much more quickly, I think, than if I had just lain there, you know, still, still and, and, and waited for sleep. It, it seems to it seems to prompt a, a feeling of calmness and sleepiness. So, Annabelle, would you read that second to last paragraph in your book? I think it's a beautiful closing and I want to leave our listeners with some final thoughts about sleep and sleeplessness. Sure. OK, here goes. We all have night selves and yours is not mine. Each is conjured from our own idiosyncratic brew of circumstance, history, genes, hormones, memories, physiology, 
and much more besides. Those of you who sleep through the darkness like logs may never encounter your night self until, perhaps, you too find yourself mired in grief or loss. As Catherine Mansfield said, she often comes as a consolation prize. My night self and my subsequent discovery of a world after dark were infinitely more than a consolation prize. They were an unexpected gift, part of my father's legacy to me, and a poignant reminder that the legacies of the dead can never be predicted. And yet we can all experience our night selves, and we can all encounter starry skies, sleeping trees, night perfumes, darkness. Switch off your lights and screams. Turn down the volume of your day self. Open a window. Venture out on fox feet. Listen to that nocturnal inner voice. She is there. She is with you, always. Well, that's just lovely, Annabelle. And I'm delighted to have had this opportunity to talk to you and also happy that you're sleeping again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was author Annabelle Abstreet's talking about her new book, Sleepless, Unleashing the Subversive Power of the Night Self. She's performed her typical alchemy of combining solid science with creative arts and history to meld a completely unique take on those waking hours in the middle of the night. This perspective can allow all of us who suffer with some insomnia a novel insight and perhaps even appreciation of this time. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Clay Walker. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, links to material referenced in the show, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KG News Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. KG News is fueled by creative and dedicated people, keeping our airwaves alive and thriving. If you're interested in science, you could be part of the How on Earth team. The first step is to attend a volunteer orientation held the first Thursday of odd-numbered months. To find out more about volunteer opportunities, visit kgnu.org.